Dr. Jess Cap, and this is Storybook Earth. Welcome to Storybook Earth, a podcast that fuses science and storytelling, two of my favorite things, to bring you vibrant tales of notable Earth features, phenomena, and places, and the geological processes that make them what they are. From the tiniest minerals in the oldest rocks on Earth, to the giant asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, from the strange and mysterious trenches of the ocean, to the romanticized top of Mount Everest, the stories in the chapters of Earth's long and beautiful history are all around us, just waiting to be told. I want to tell you the story of how I fell in love with Zircon. I think it is a sweet story, even though it is a love story between a young female geologist and a somewhat obscure, tiny mineral most people have probably never heard of. But it is genuine a natural affection that blossomed out of curiosity and enchantment. What started out as functional led to fascination. What exactly is zircon, you might be asking? We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's go back to my entrance into the world of graduate studies, pursuing a master's degree in geology. I was not a very sophisticated scientist, having found geology somewhat late in my educational career and self-doubt and trepidation about being a scientist were pretty par for the course for me. When I started my master's, all I knew was that I had a preference for igneous rocks. I think I mentioned that in an earlier episode. I wanted to learn to utilize them to decipher geologic histories, and the idea of walking around on what was once a magma chamber was impossibly fantastic, to me at least. My advisor had several projects going in the El Dorado Mountains of southwestern Nevada, and there I would find what I was looking for. A large and beautiful pluton, a body of igneous rock that cooled beneath Earth's surface and was later exposed. It was really stunning, snowy white with shining flecks of muscovite mica and peppered with tiny red garnets here and there, and it had a unique chemistry and potentially an interesting story. One of the first questions geologists often ask when encountering a new rock formation is, how old is it? This is a question that may seem impossible to answer in terms of rocks, but we actually have a really elegant way of dating rocks, figuring out when they were born, so to speak. A rock's birthday is the day it cools and solidifies from magma. If a rock melts, its age will be reset, and when it cools again into a new rock, it is reborn and its age begins accumulating all over. This is because the clocks we use to measure a rock's age are isotopes, which are sensitive to heat, in the sense that if a rock gets too hot, it can mobilize the isotopes that we need to measure how long that rock has been around, causing the age to be reset as those isotopes escape from the minerals they are a part of. We call this study of rock ages geochronology. As an undergraduate, I had never done any geochronological studies of rocks. That is, I had never dated rocks before. But I was about to have my first dating experience, and after that, I was hooked. Okay, some details about how we are able to use isotopes to date rocks. First off, isotopes, 
They're just forms of the same element, meaning they have the same number of protons in their nuclei, but with varying numbers of neutrons, giving them each slightly different atomic weights. An example, one that is used a lot in geochronology, is uranium. All atoms of uranium have 92 protons in their nuclei. However, there are several forms of uranium with varying numbers of neutrons in their nuclei, including, but not limited to, uranium-235 and uranium-238. The reason I mention these two is because they are radioactive, and they decay to various isotopes of lead, lead-207 and lead-206, respectively, over fairly long timescales. Here's what happens. Certain minerals forming in a magma incorporate uranium into their atomic structures when they form. Then, when the magma cools and becomes a rock, the uranium is locked into those minerals and begins to decay or change into its daughter product, lead. So essentially, at time zero, when the mineral has cooled and solidified, there is nothing but uranium inside of it. But over time, that uranium, what we call the parent, will start to change to lead, the daughter. More and more radiogenic lead will build up, and there is less and less of the parent, uranium, left over. That is the clock. We can actually extract these minerals, measure the relative amounts of lead and uranium, do some fancy calculations, taking into account any lead that might be there that didn't come from the parent, and voila, an age. The time it takes for half of the atoms of uranium in a sample to decay to lead is called a half-life. Since we know how long it takes for half of the sample of uranium to decay, we can look at the ratio of parent to daughter in a sample and figure out how many half-lives have passed. We know it takes about 700 million years for half of the uranium-235 atoms in a sample to change to lead. And it takes about four and a half billion years for half of the atoms of uranium-238 in a sample to decay to lead. This means we can use the decay of uranium to lead as our clock, especially for old rocks. For example, if we found a ratio of 50-50 using the isotopes uranium-238 and lead-206, we would know that one half-life had passed, or about four and a half billion years. There are many different isotopes geologists use for dating. Some work for old rocks, like our uranium lead system with its long half-lives, and others work for really young stuff, like carbon dating, which utilizes carbon, which has a half-life of around 5,000 years. And by the way, carbon dating is not used to date rocks, but for things that contain organic materials. And there are isotope systems with half-lives in between, so we have all possible rock ages pretty well covered. Now that we have an understanding of how the dating process works, let's get acquainted with a little mineral I came to adore called zircon. Zirconium silicate, Z-R-S-I-O-4. You may know its gemstone form, cubic zirconium. It can look like diamonds in its purest form, but that is not why I love it. What I love about it is that when it forms, it incorporates uranium into its atomic structure in place of zirconium because it fits pretty well in that spot. But it doesn't incorporate lead. 
that high uranium low lead situation it has going on when it first forms is perfect as a geochronological clock because we know the lead we find in zircon was formed by radioactive decay of uranium. So the clock starts running as soon as the zircon crystallizes and the magma cools. The other great thing about zircon is that it is hard and strong, so it resists weathering. It also melts at fairly high temperature, so once it forms, it stays around. And it also has a high, what we call, closure temperature, meaning that once it forms, the isotopes inside stay locked in and don't leak out unless the zircon reaches temperatures of about 900 degrees C, making it a safe little haven for our isotopic clock to sit happily, potentially for billions of years, accumulating lead by a radioactive decay, undisturbed, unbroken, and ready to be tapped into by curious geologists. I will never forget prepping my first sample of granite for geochronological analysis. The process can be tedious, but I found it mesmerizing. First, I had to crush my rock samples down into a fairly fine powder. The zircons are tiny, and we need to release them from the rock so we can collect them for analysis. This begins by putting your rock sample into a jaw crusher, sometimes a second type of crushing machine, maybe even a mortar and pestle, maybe a shatter box sieves of varying mesh size, maybe a water table that sorts the minerals by density, and finally a machine that vibrates and hums and pulls the magnetic minerals out of the sample, hopefully leaving you with a pretty well-sorted little pile of powder that can then be dumped into very dangerous heavy liquids, which allow the densest stuff, including zircon, to fall through to the bottom of a funnel, while the less dense throwaways like quartz and feldspar float to the top. What is crazy about this process is that you can start with a chunk of rock the size of your head and end up with a pile of powder that sits neatly in the palm of your hand. It may not seem like much, but if you're lucky, that little pile holds all you will need to date your rock. Hundreds of zircons just waiting to be probed. Another interesting thing about zircon is that it often grows in these concentric zones, kind of like tree rings from the inside out as it sits in a magma and it grows in long prismatic crystal shapes with two pointed ends, what you think of when you hear the word crystal. These little crystals, when imaged using high-powered magnification, can look absolutely stunning with thin growth zones that give them this beautiful concentric pattern. But they also can contain what we call inherited cores. The center of the crystal can look different than the growth rings around it. Sometimes that center can be rounded, like perhaps it was weathered at some point. Sometimes it looks like a chunk of what clearly was at one time its own prismatic zircon crystal, and so on. So zircons sometimes grow around pre-existing zircons, meaning if we can isolate these various areas of the crystal when we analyze them, we can extract multiple ages from a single zircon crystal. Amazing. Now I should mention that most of these zircon crystals are teeny tiny, microscopic, maybe the width of a human hair. Even more amazing. When people first started doing geochronological analyses, they would dissolve samples of whole rock and extract isotopic ratios, which, as you can imagine, based on what I just told you about zircons, would yield not very accurate ages. 
since not all of the zircons in a sample will be homogeneous in age, the resulting ages would be what we call mixed. Then people started isolating the zircons, but still dissolving all of them together, again yielding mixed ages. It was only with the advent of high-resolution ion microprobes and laser ablation inductively coupled mass spectrometers that geologists were able to really focus in on ages that actually meant something. When a crystal originally formed, and even when it obtained new growth around its edge, either from a magma or in some cases a metamorphic fluid, we could isolate these ages. These machines and the techniques associated with their use revolutionized rock dating. Okay, back to my experience. After separating my zircons and pouring them into a glass petri dish, I would squint through a binocular microscope and hand pick them with a fine metal instrument, laying them in neat rows, one by one, on sticky tape, upon which I would pour epoxy to make a zircon mount for analysis. And then the fun would begin. It was the hours spent imaging these little beauties with a scanning electron microscope that really sparked my love of these geochronological superstars. Back in my grad school days, we would take multiple images of a single crystal with various forms of color and contrast, searching for areas we wanted to target for either inherited ages or magmatic ages or metamorphic ages, sometimes all three, and map those out before putting the crystals in a high-resolution ion microprobe in which an oxygen beam would vaporize little pits of zircon, sometimes as small as about 20 microns across. The machine would send this material flying down a tube through a large magnet that would separate out the isotopes by weight, which then ended up in multiple collectors. In this way, we could measure the amounts of uranium and lead in a volume of zircon and calculate an age. We could detect the very intricate and multi-layered age histories by targeting specific parts of the crystal. And we started to think about the three-dimensional aspect of age zoning that could also be at play in the crystal, leading us to experiment with depth profiling, where we would blast a single spot for a long period of time and measure the liberated isotopes to see if there was an age change as we dug down deeper into the crystal. It was so cool. One single analysis on an ion microprobe would take about 15 minutes, and we were at the forefront of high-tech in the late 90s. Our lab was always full, running 24-7, people coming from all over the world to use our machine. I was privileged enough to run some Jack Hills zircons, some of the oldest known zircons on Earth, for some visiting scientists when I was a PhD student, and I cannot really even describe the feeling of watching those ages. 4.1 billion, 4.3 billion, rolling off the computer. It seemed like a miracle. Nowadays, the techniques have gotten even better, more precise, and faster. Where I currently work, our machines use lasers to blast pits that are as tiny as 1 to 2 microns across, meaning they can now analyze crystals that are as tiny as 10 microns in diameter. And each analysis takes a matter of seconds. Shout out to the Arizona Lasercron Center at University of Arizona. They are world leaders in geochronological techniques and generating high precision and accuracy data. 
I still marvel at the fact that a tiny crystal of zircon, no bigger across than the width of a human hair, can contain so much valuable information. That one single crystal can have a 2 billion year old inherited core, a 200 million year old magmatic zone around that core, and a 2 million year old metamorphic rim? That just blows my mind. One single crystal can record three separate geologic events, or maybe more. And my geological predecessors figured out how to read those stories in the microscopic storybooks contained within zircons. If that isn't inspiring, I don't know what is. Next time, I will tell you a tale of the curious discoveries made when people started dating the zircons found within the sedimentary rocks of the Grand Canyon. It's pretty epic. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please consider subscribing, liking, writing a review, and sharing this with a friend or two. Thanks to our listeners and supporters. Special thanks to Michaela Moore for music, sound editing, and design, and to Pierce Ware for the artwork. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist.